Hello and welcome to another episode of What's That Noise? The podcast that explores matters of confusion and clarity, however and whatever that means. Flying solo in Europe for the summer of 2018, I hope to bring you guys some very different perspectives. And today we begin with a North Rhine-Westphalian flavor brought to you by my new friend and colleague, Max Planka project officer at the Center for Advanced Internet Studies here in Bochum, Germany. So kick back, have a German beer with us, and enjoy. My friends, I have a lot to be grateful for. What's that noise is into its 11th episode. In just a few short months, we are now averaging 500 plays per week across Google Play Music and iTunes. Derek and I are absolutely touched, blown away, and totally motivated by your ongoing and continued interest and support. So thank you so much for being here. And Derek, big shout out to you, man. You know, I'm finally realizing now just how difficult it is to do a solo episode without you. I also don't have the equipment that we normally use. I had to go out and buy a Samson Go. It's a microphone the size of my thumb. And as you're going to notice, it doesn't quite sound as good, so I do apologize in advance. I am particularly grateful to be here in Europe to continue talking to you guys about matters of confusion and clarity as I begin a four-month fellowship here at the Center for Advanced Internet Studies in Bochum, Germany. I am particularly grateful to be here because the people are absolutely incredible. Not only are they all warm, awesome people, but they are also extremely passionate and motivated to address social issues, economic issues, cultural, political, anthropological, philosophical, pedagogical, you name it, any issue related to the internet or digitization in a way that I have never seen before. If you're a researcher and you are interested in applying, I really encourage you to do so. Check out the website CAIS.NRW and have a look at their call for applicants. And you'll see a number of themes that the center is interested in pursuing. And you'll also notice that they're constantly bringing in fellows three, four months at a time. So don't just apply once, apply often. To kick off my summer's worth of interviews, and as I bug the numerous awesome people at the center to join the show, today we're going to sit down and talk about interdisciplinarity again. So in many ways, this is an extension of our interview with Danny, but not necessarily in terms of the promises of interdisciplinarity, but also in terms of its challenges. Coming to Germany, I wondered on my flight, and I wondered well before packing my bags, what is it like to experience this interdisciplinarity at a research center on the other side of the pond? Because I've always identified numerous challenges in doing this in Canada. The lines between the hard and the social sciences, so to speak, are rather rigid. They're very discernible, and they're hard to negotiate. So, this has been a first order of business for me, and I couldn't have picked a better guy to talk to. Max Blenka is a project officer for the center, and he's playing a really crucial role in helping the center transform into something much bigger, but which involves a lot of conceptual growth in really challenging ways. So I think that Max is going to be a key person to talk to 
about interdisciplinary challenges. I also think Max is a key guy, if not the key guy, to talk to about the history of KAIS, about where it's been, where it's going. I'd also really like to get to know Max more. What it's like, for example, to grow up in North Rhine-Westphalia. What it's like studying and traveling around in Europe. Let's see what the differences are. Max, how long have I known you for? How many days has it been? It's been, what now, 17 days? Not even. Not even. 14 days, 15 days, and something that we definitely have in common is that we're both geographically challenged. <laughs> when, when did you realize that you sucked with geography? I don't know. Early. I mean, I once got lost on one street. That's a mean feat, I, I would suppose. On a what street? Oh, it was just one street, like a big street in my hometown. As I'm, I apparently just went into the wrong direction for about an hour and a half, not an hour and a half, 20 minutes. Um, and then I had to get somebody to get me because I couldn't find myself. But that's not, that's not the word. That was probably the first one was that. That was like almost 10 years ago. I told you I'm old. Um, the worst, the worst definitely was getting lost here, trying to go in a straight line from a flat to the main station and somehow ending up five kilometers west of where I was going to go. <laughs> that was a problem. Um, but nowadays, you kind of have... Getting lost nowadays is a hard thing to do. But. Oh, yeah, if you have GPS and you've got your phone with you. But a challenge is for me is that I don't have a SIM card here, right? So oh, I don't. No, I, it's too expensive. Right. So what I do is I just sort of walk around looking for Wi-Fi. And if <laughs> I can good. find something to connect to, then I will. And then, you know, in the moment, realize how far away I am from where I want to be, which was basically my entire first day. <laughs> I showed up here on a Monday, a holiday Monday, and I was extremely tired. I hadn't slept in what, I don't know, felt like a day and a half. It was probably a lot less than that. And I didn't realize that I lived somewhere near the heart of Bochum. Mm -hmm. And for people who don't know, Bochum is like, it's got this heart to it. It's like the center of the city. Which actually is in the center, which is apparently a rare thing. Is it? Well, a lot of towns, if you think about it, the center is somewhere not in the center. It's like, we just looked at a map of the surrounding area. My hometown, the center of town is like at the, in the west. It's like from to go from the center to Bochum of my hometown Witten, which is right next, is closer to go than to go from the center to where I actually live, which is in the far east of town. So somehow the town ah. center, because there are so many towns just plonked together around here, is uh, completely uh, completely in the west. Hamburg is the same because the center is right around the river. City basically ends at the river. So it's like the southernmost part of the town, or at least where you go. I mean, there are still parts of town that are south of the river, but why would you go there? Yeah, fair enough. It's like the, the harbor area. But Hamburg's the same, and, well, London isn't, I suppose. London, UK, I mean. Uh, Cardiff's similar, where I used to live. So, I don't know where I'm going with this, but Bochum actually is very symmetrical. Which I guess is a positive. Is is part of that because there's like a big road that runs around in a circle? Around I mean, the yeah, but they, they, I mean, Bochum has been around for what, like 600 years or something. So, I mean, they didn't build the the road then, I suppose. I, I, I so, don't know. I, and I realized this, you know, when I got here. And I, I suppose that worked to my advantage because 
I only had to walk around that that inner road like three times both directions before I realized that I couldn't possibly get lost as long as I stayed on that road. The trouble was... Um, you were never going to go where you were going to go. Exactly. How were you going to go? Yeah, exactly, right? So I eventually figured out where it was where it was that I was going to stay. But, you know, this is um, this is unusual, I think, for a lot of North Americans because... As we discovered earlier, looking at a map of the great city of London, Ontario, Canada, right, it's surrounded by like a checkerboard. Mm -hmm. Have you been to North America before? Yeah, I actually have been to Canada. I just realized yesterday for about four and a half hours. <laughs> um, well, Niagara Falls, like going over and like driving up to what's that, like Ontario or something, like along the river. One of those. Yeah. Saint Lawrence, you mean? I have no idea. Like the. <laughs> The water goes down the falls, and then it goes into some kind of lake. Well, seeing how geographically challenged I am, right. we'll just call that the St. Lawrence. But now. yeah, I was in, in North America once with my family on a vacation about years ago. When we were on basically on the eastern seaboard up and down the place. And yeah, we were in Canada for a few hours, but that was about it. <laughs> Did you like Canada? Yeah. It's really nice, way nicer than the American part of Niagara Falls, to say. I, I mean, and going on, there were like wineries and stuff. Mm -hmm. That was quite nice. Um, I and the view to the fall, like on the falls, is way nicer from the Canadian side. So that was good. And did you get lost in that four and a half hours? I did not, but I was mainly in my parents' car. So there was not a lot of agency involved on my side. <laughs> can't get out of the car, can't get lost. Right. Stay on the highways and you're good to go. And I think that's maybe like part of the reason why m my sense of geography is even more challenged when I come here. Because nothing is straight. Yeah, that's <laughs> Bo true. Bochum's a big ring, yeah. essentially. And there's a bunch of legs that sprawl out away from the ring. Yeah. So as long as you tell people, I want to head back to the ring you're essentially good. But everything winds so much. Yeah. Somebody once explained to me, like a friend a long time ago, that, and it makes sense, that a lot of European cities start near rivers. Yeah. For shipping, right? There aren't and many rivers water. around London. <laughs> like, we have a river. We have the Thames River, yeah. coincidentally, that runs through London. But, um, you know, this isn't uh, something that we use as, like, a strategic geographical Wait a second. Point. The city is called London, Ontario, and the river next to it is called the Thames. Don't get me started. <laughs> Don't get me started. This is something that people talk about all the time. And if you really look, because I'm sure you will this weekend, Max, because you're going to be that bored, you know, go back on Google Maps and look at London, Ontario, Canada again. You're going to notice that we have like all sorts of streets that are named after oh, okay. key things in London. Like our main street is Richmond Street. Oh, we have good. a King Street. I think we've got a Queens. I'm not really sure about that. Well, you should. You're still... Well, you're not really subject to her, but kind of. I feel less subject to her when I come to Germany. <laughs> <laughs> but I think most big towns... Isn't, like, Mexico City the only big town that isn't on a river, like, in the world? And Mexico City is really getting done in by that because they don't have any water or anything. So... I don't know, That's that sounds like a thing that would also be relevant in, in other cities. On the other hand, North Americans are like, I don't care, this is my city now. And then there's a city there. You know, th knowing that I live on that continent, and that part of the world, you'd think I'd know that. 
the things I'm learning from you inside of 15 days, Max, it's absolutely incredible. I mean, we, we previously talked about the difference in, in size between North America in general and like Germany, but also like Central Europe. Uh, like, as I said, I was in Mexico and it's like, you look at something on a map and you'd think it's similar to something you know from Germany. And it's like, ah, that's going to be like two hours. You can go over there. It's fucking 14 hours in a bus. Or the friend I told you about who went from, what was it, from Vancouver to Toronto in a train and just took him like nine days. <laughs> there's, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's no train line in the entirety of Europe that you can stay on for nine hours going in one direction. We have to give our listeners some perspective here. What is the distance between here and Moscow? Fuck you. <laughs> it's very far. Moscow is like far. From here. So this it's is even a, further from Lisbon. This is a running joke because Max made this reference to the difference in distances between like A and B and then B and C being here to Moscow without actually knowing how far away Moscow is. And you would think I have looked it up by now. I haven't. What was that, like three days ago? That was like a week ago. Uh, we can Google it after the show. Yeah, sure. And we can tweet about it because that's really, really important. <laughs> I, I think the, the the discussion on geography between us, knowing each other for two for two weeks, is is really interesting because my sense of the world is obviously informed by how I got to know the region that I live in and how it's mapped out and you get to know the geopolitics. And I've often wondered, um, you know, throughout my twenties and my late teens, coming to Europe, uh, what it's like for people to have the same thoughts being Europeans. Because obviously the geography is very different and the way the land is plotted out is very different. And in a lot of ways, this part of Germany that we're in um, seems really reflective of that European difference that I've been thinking about. I'm curious what, what it was like growing up for you in Germany. Tell me a little bit about how you've gotten to know your country being from North Rhine-Westphalia. And tell us a little bit about um, how you wound up in the actual London. You were in the actual London, UK, right? Uh, well, I was there once. I didn't live there. Where were you again? Cardiff? I was in Cardiff, Wales, yeah. Uh, Wales, that's definitely not the UK. You see what I no, mean? No, it I is the UK. Oh, it is the UK. Yes, it's the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and Wales is a part of Great Britain. You see what happens when I come out to this continent. It is complicated. It's very complicated. Well, it's not that complicated. But, well, I think, strangely enough, the main difference growing up was that Europe wasn't as connected. So we are here, we're in the in the far west of Germany, the westernmost state. So we're quite close to the Dutch border. And North, North Rhine-Westphalia also touches on Belgium and France, but we're in the middle and we're closer to the Netherlands. But back then, when we didn't have the Euro, it was, um, you didn't really go to the network, people did, but it was always a huge thing, like you have to exchange money. And back then, of course, you had to go to a bank branch and uh, place an order. And then a week later, you would get your Gulden and you would give them your Deutsche Mark, right? And nowadays, it's li I literally, a year ago or something, just went over to the Netherlands to play laser tech for an, for an afternoon. Like, that's for me, that's the main difference. It's not even Germany, it's like Europe. And um, the Euro, and then you can just go there and uh, pay with the same money and then you come back. Um, the difference to to the rest of Germany is, well, we're talking about North Rhine-Westphalia, and that's like uh, an important part also for my work, which we get into later, is the state. And there are these 16 states, and you always 
kind of have your your local allegiances kind of and especially here because it's um, by population the biggest state and has kind of a special standing I would say because I'm from here <laughs> but because it's the most populous and and one of the one of the biggest industry industry sectors um, yeah you kind of realize once you once you move around and once you meet people from other parts that um, yeah you live you live differently I would say so I've not always lived here but I've grown I grew up here um, and it's very packed like we just talked about how my hometown is um, right next to Bochum and it's sandwiched in between Bochum and Dortmund so Witten where I'm from has about around 100,000 uh, inhabitants which is considered a big city everywhere else it is but we are in this in this Ruhrgebiet which is a part of of North Rhine-Westphalia that has like 5 million inhabitants in I don't know how many different cities 15 17 something like that um, and it's even bigger part of the Ruhr-Rhein metro area which also then you go to Düsseldorf and Cologne and bigger bigger cities and that's like 10 million people on around the area of London UK so you're in your small town or your kind of small town compared to all the big towns but you're also in this huge conglomerate of towns so I have no idea where I'm going with this <laughs> but it's a it's a very specific thing I told you before that it's for me it's completely normal that you're like if you go to the butcher shop you will go on the autobahn that's like because it's the shortest way you can just drive on drive off on the next exit and that's it other people who are from more rural areas of Germany is like they don't have an autobahn is like 40 kilometers around them so that's completely different and that's why um, we have unique challenges here I think um, that you uh, kind of have to look at how, how traffic like people here are completely used to just sitting around in traffic for an hour every day that's just the way it goes you know it, that's not an unusual story for for North Americans and I'm sure you've heard stories about the traffic in California or or New York yeah but coincidentally um, Toronto southwestern Ontario the last time I heard has some of the worst traffic jams in the continent if not the planet Okay. When you come to Canada, because I'm going to get you out there one day, oh. and we're going to hang out in Toronto or the great city of London, Ontario, Canada, we're going to go on the 401. And the 401 is our main highway, mm -hmm. and it connects the great city of London to the even greater city of Toronto and our capital of Ottawa. And it's brutal. <laughs> you will sit for hours. I, I'm not sure if I told you. I think I've shared this with somebody else here at the center. But when I had to go and do my interview, my screening with the German consulate in Toronto, yeah. I had uh, an interview at 3.15 p.m. on a Thursday. Mm -hmm. I left before 10 a.m. that day. Now, technically, Max, that should be just under two-hour drive. Mm -hmm. I was five minutes late for the meeting. <laughs> okay, you have it worse than we do. Well, that's <laughs> talking about being geographically, uh, geographically challenged. I have now lived here... Well, I've been gone for the last seven years or something, but in total about 20 years. I learned driving around here. I couldn't tell you what number the autobahns have. There are so many, all of them start with a four. Once the 40, once the 44, once the 46, once the 45. 
I've no idea which one is which. I've been on the A4 once. Yeah, that's somewhere, I guess. Near Austria, I think. Yeah, that's not here. <laughs> so... So very different lands and, and somehow similar, similar challenges. Yeah, and now I don't have to because I have a smartphone. So the smartphone will allow you to get from your house to here at Kais, and we are sitting here in the lounge. We've got these really high-backed couches <laughs> collapsed in around uh, a lamp. We took well, a lamp stand. A lamp stand. We took the lamp shade off and the light bulb out. And I'm hanging this new little microphone off the end so that we can do this podcast. And it's a very unusual setup for me. And it's in a very unusual place. But this isn't an unusual place for, for you. How long have you worked here at the Center, Max? And tell us a little bit about what you do here. Well, I've only worked here for two months now. So, um... Which I'm sorry to interrupt. I find really unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> because you're, you're, you've got your thumb on the pulse of this place. Well, there was there was kind of um, a change. Well, not of guard, but well, let's just start by talking about what the the Kaiser. So you're here as a fellow, and that's basically the the core the core concept of the Center for Advanced Internet Studies in Bochum at the moment. So it's basically a way to organize funding. Um, we get funding from the state government, and we organize it into different streams. The biggest one of that is fellowships, so that's you getting money and an office and a, I don't know if you get a laptop, I don't think so, but I've uh, got a and desktop. a flat. I've oh, you have a desktop, desktop right. Uh, and all of that, we finance that so that you and the other people who are here um, can concentrate on their work. And the way I was able to get into that pretty quickly is that you just came in two weeks ago, Julia came in last week, uh, Ms. Gotto is here uh, since last month. So there, the fellows are quite new. And um, the other things we're doing, just to have it mentioned, we fund um, events that somebody wants to put on if they want to do a conference or something, and working groups if they want to come here, use our facilities and work on some topic, um, they can do that. Um, and you can do that, dear listener. If you uh, if you feel so inclined, but more on that maybe later. Oh, what we'll, we'll definitely do? be doing some more plugging throughout the show. Yeah, me. Um, I mean you can describe your experiences for the last two weeks, but specifically what I do is that the Kais is supposed to grow. So it all started with um, the federal, the German ministry for science saying or the german government basically saying we want an institute that looks at the internet or digitization in general from a sociological perspective more or less and we're going to give money to that so send us your applications and a group from around here from north Rhine westphalia basically put together um, a concept and send it to them they got into the last round but they were rejected um, in the end, the institute is now in Berlin. It's the Weizenbaum Institute for the Networked Society, I think it's what it's called. Which is a big institute. Yeah, there's like, there all the Berlin, uh, Berlin universities are involved. That's like six different universities, I think. They have about 80 people working there now. They started at the beginning of last year. They're still hiring um, people and trying to get their feet under them. But yeah, they get a, a lot of money and they, they're putting it, putting it to use. Um, but out of out of that um, consortium, basically, grew 
the Kais at first, because that was supposed to be a part of the North, North Rhine-Westphalian. It's a shitty name to say. North Rhine-Westphalian. Yeah. How do you say that in German? North Rhine-Westphalian. Or oh. North Rhine-Westphalische. But we also, that's, again, really bad in English. We shorten it to NRW, which is just the... NRW. NRW sounds like crap. NRV is fine. So the website is cais.nrw. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't realize what .nrw meant until, like, Tuesday. (laughs) (laughs) I've got my nrw.nrw email address. Yeah. Completely taking for granted uh, what what all of that meant. Before I started here, I didn't know that you can get that as a top-level domain. I had no idea that that exists. The potential is unlimited. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, anyway, the Kai started as part of that, and people, or they said, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna start that. That's a good idea." And after um, they didn't get the money for the big institute, the state government said, "Wait, maybe we can do something on a smaller scale, but as a full institute for um, social, scientific, uh, interdisciplinary research in our state." And that's where I come in. Um, they asked Kais to write a concept. Kais said, all right, we need somebody to write that concept. And then they got my basically my boss, Christoph Bieber, who is a professor of political science and political ethics in Duisburg, which, or Duisburg-Essen, which is one of the universities here. One of the 16 universities in this state, by the way. 16? 16. 14 or 16. And, and that's, just... that's only the research universities. There are universities of applied sciences are about 40. So We just... can talk about that oh, later. Oh, gosh, what a mess. So just to give people um, uh, an idea conceptually about the size, we could fit your entire country of Germany inside of my province of Ontario yeah. about three times. Yeah. So North Rhine-Westphalia is but a fraction of that and you have how many how many institutions well research university it's either either 14 or 16 i think it's 16 and then you have universities of applied sciences which do not do a lot of research more teaching outfits some of them are really really specified only a few thousand students but there are i think about 40 of them 40 uh, yeah there are, i mean there are four in Bochum alone, I think. So there's one that's just for like agriculture, and that's just four universities in Bochum. Yeah. Wow, the things I haven't learned in two weeks is unbelievable as well. Yeah, I mean the University of Bochum, like the big one, the the actual full research university, is by far the biggest one. Um, and the yeah the universities of applied science are, I mean I could get into the entire German education system. I'm not going to do that to you now. Basically, the Maybe idea we'll do is that you, in another interview. Yeah, right. Uh, Education Inc. Part 2. <laughs> um, <laughs> Shout out to Danny. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I listened to that this morning. I mean, I have no idea how I'm following up on that, but fine. Oh, I guess we'll let the, the listeners dictate that. Oh, got it. <laughs> I have no idea where I was. We were going to go back and talk about Kais and your role here. Right, right. So, um, ah, I was talking about Christoph, right? So he's at one of the universities. There actually used to be two universities, so there used to be one more, but they... They fe- joined. They joined, yeah. 
Um, he's now at the Institute and I was hired two months ago to um, basically lead the conceptual process of uh, figuring out how to take the money we might get and build uh, an institute where about 20 researchers will try to yeah, go about the business of figuring out what digitization in the society does. And the idea is um, to do that as interdisciplinary, uh, interdisciplinary as possible um, and to um, not just do uh, social scientific look at it and not just say, all right, here are uh, a handful of sociologists and a few political scientists and they're going to think about the digital now, but we want to include the technical side. So the idea is to have people who do research on the technical side and have them work not alongside, but with one another. And that's that's one of the big challenges kind of for us now to figure out a mode of working where even though the focus is to uh, have social scientific research in some way, that you actually have technical expertise and that technical expertise isn't just like auxiliary because no... Um, computer scientist who's worth his salt wants to just sit around and wait for the social sciences scientist to tell him write a web crawler for me or something that's <laughs> couldn't imagine why yeah that's of course not what they want to do um, so we we have to find a way to get these people on the same page conceptually which is um, at some point, like all the people we talk to think it's a great idea and then they talk about their everyday work and it's completely different. One example is like, so we're looking at having research programs or research themes that run for about five years, four or five years, that will be staffed by one full professor. I don't know, as always, the professor term is completely different in every city, but in Germany it's the the highest ranking um researcher basically have somebody who's a postdoc and have two or three people who are working on dissertations and they would be thematically connected to the the research theme um, we talked to a computer scientist we know very well and he said well that's that's not enough like you kind of have to put two of those together to to really get somewhere and Why, then we, and then we from because they just have teams of that size. Then we talked to uh, um, somebody in a different context, but her background is in cultural anthropology. And she told us, we have institutes that are smaller than that group. Like, it's just the amount of uh, the, the, the human resources in the different fields are completely different. And that's one of the, the problems we face. How do you convince somebody who has 20 people working on like a machine learning project and one and that's what happens in some of the some of the institutes that already exist in North Rhine-Westphalia that are completely technically focused how do you convince somebody who has that many resources to come and work with only four people I, I think it, you were making a comment earlier today or maybe it was yesterday about how how interesting it is that in the social sciences we spend a long time researching a problem. A social issue can be investigated now, and it could still be meaningful three or four years from now. Mm -hmm. might not be as topical, but for computer scientists, this is a very, very different story. 
they're constantly cranking out software. Yeah. They're constantly producing interventions. Is that part of what you mean by the challenges of trying to get, you know, social scientists working together with computer scientists? That's one of the things we've heard that that's uh, kind of a problem. And that's, yeah, looking at if you want to do a research project that's like set for four years. Social scientists are going to say, I know like four years are a bit short, but fine, we're going to spend that time <laughs> doing doing something really good. And then you get to uh, someone who's a data scientist or a mathematician is like, four years is a long time. I can do a lot of things. And how could I know what happens in four years? And that's, um, we kind of, I mean, at the end of the day, we, we just have to split the middle or find a way to, to make it work um, together. I mean, of course, there are, that's the, the interesting part that there are, of course, problems in the technical realm that have been around for decades that people are actively working on. So it's not like um, in that area, the problems are just uh, popping up and being being put down and it's it's constantly churning. It's they maybe even have if, if you think about it, there there isn't something like Fermat's theorem in social sciences. We kind of like we just at some point say we figured it out <laughs> until somebody says, well, I have a different idea of how that could work. You know, it's it's um, maybe it's the difference between um, studying something that's constantly changing and studying something that's yeah hard, that's there, that's kind of like has an answer somewhere. You know, for a technical problem, you know that there is an answer somewhere. For social sciences, it's just next week the answer is different and maybe the, the answer is there is no answer and maybe the answer is uh, don't ask that question or ask a different question <laughs> or something we figured out 40 years ago. Wait a second. That's not how we should look at that. The more I'm listening to you explain these sort of things from your perspective, which is fascinating to me, I'm realizing that there are so many challenges for interdisciplinarity in the academy. In the Education Inc. Part 1, shout out to Danny again, <laughs> and my buddy Derek, who is obviously not here in Germany, we, the three of us in that moment, come to identify the promise of interdisciplinary collaboration because of what it can promise. And in the moment of this conversation, I'm starting to feel like maybe it was too much of like a utopian projection. You know, the idea that hard scientists, people that work with computers, would sit down with social scientists and just somehow have the same vision of what to do, the same goals and hopes of what that might achieve, and the same common problems that need to be overcome. I don't have to debug script on a software. Right. Because I don't write software, but I study it. Yeah. And in the project that I'm doing here at KAIS, I work with these various different subfields that some will call critical data studies, critical code studies, platform studies, software studies, where I make really weird interpretations of what the software and the code is doing. And something that I've recognized in the world is that when people use these methodologies, computer scientists often say, you're not even understanding the language. So how could people sit down and work together 
Well, I think the answer to that is you kind of have to go up a conceptual level to a degree. So you just said like um, finding common goals. It's really easy to find common goals between social scientists and and I always say technical people, which is something like those people. <laughs> um, I don't I don't have a better term. Um, you can as how do we solve mobility in a, an area around here? Like how do you how do you make you not be late to that uh, that interview? That's something. That's a question that I think about. That's a question that somebody who writes code for a self-driving car thinks about. Um, so you can get um, you can get big conceptual level questions, and that's what we're what we're trying to do at the moment. Find exemplary projects or programs that um, people could work again uh, on together, and um, then you kind of have to parcel out the work and find people who want to look at uh, um, a small part of that in their field and work on that and are open to input from others. So if we stay with mobility, if somebody is working on a very small section of, let's say, automatically figuring out what, uh, what sign is in front of a car, Right. That's probably not something some one even that tiny little thing out of the all the entire automatic driving thing is not something that one person would work on. But let's just say it is. Then the people I've talked to are interested in how that connects to um for example uh how that technology is received. So that's a security relevant thing. So that ties back to um, questions of how this technology is is accepted in society, which is a original question in sociology. So I think you can't expect them to work as one person, because that's just, I mean, you're a sociologist, how often do sociologists work together? They do, but not all of them, not all the time, some of them actively work against each other and against themselves right so um to think that it's that that's something that comes from the difference in disciplines um maybe is limiting i don't know um so yeah just having people that's one of the ideas just having people basically be around each other and constantly um work with each other and talk to each other, even if they don't necessarily um, work on the same project, which, I mean, they can. There are applications of technology that are original to um, sociological fields, but then you again have this problem of auxiliary uh, things. But there is an institute in Düsseldorf, which is south of here and is uh, where I studied, where I got my, got my bachelor's degree. And they are, um, it's uh, the Dusseldorf Institute for Internet and Democracy. And they're specifically looking at a lot of ways to get people involved in the democratic process using technology. And they are IT people involved and they um, aren't just told this is what we want the system to do, now build it, which would be a kind of devaluing, but they are in the design process. Because again, I have no idea about software design. Um, and they find new ways to um, 
receive feedback. They um, build build a thing where like you can um, basically simulate a, a deliberative process. So somebody puts in, so there's a question and then somebody puts in, this is my answer to that question and my argument is this. And then somebody else sees the question and they see, all right, somebody said argument this, do you agree or do you have a different argument? And by that you kind of crowdsource a mm -hmm. deliberative process without mm -hmm. having people to come together and, and actually deliberate it. And that's, um, I think there, I don't work with them closely, but they um, have the people who designed the system, um, of course, in, in close contact with people who think about the, um, the more sociological or political science implications of that. So that's, there are projects of this and we know that, that it can work and that you, that you can um, basically do both. So it, it seems that mobility, even if we're just talking about hypothetically, could be something that um, KAIS could work on if the application to turn into an institute is successful. And so our, yeah. our listeners are, are aware and they're on the same page. We here at KAIS, the Center for Advanced Internet Studies, are together as a research center. Yeah. which is different here in this region and from what I understand generally speaking in Germany is very different than an institute. That's semantics, I think. Oh, is it? Okay. I Sorry, as I've gotten to, to know this place and, and the process, uh, the application that you guys are putting in, um, I always figured that a center and an institute are different because of no. the size. That's not a, that's not, um, a set thing. People oh. call that's. I mean, we're... <laughs> We're looking for a name right now. You know that very well. Very well. I <laughs> you and of, I, you I and kind I of roped you roped you into finding a name <laughs> for me because it has to work in English. So why not get the native English speaker and involved? How, how many how many names did you look at online? Because I I looked at a lot yesterday. I think I looked at like a hundred and eighty three of name, people names of people from this region of Germany yeah. that were like famous scientists or technologists, and I tried to find like a name. Yeah, looking at people. Yeah, about a hundred, I think, but you very quickly figure out that people might not be the way to go. So is this where I get to tell the listener about the one suggestion that I had that made you laugh at me hysterically for about an hour? Yeah, why not? I mean, the idea was to, um, to have a person, have the name of a person as the name of the institute, and that person should be, of course, from the state because it will be funded by the state and will be a state institute or a state center. And um, that person should somehow be evolved, involved in technological change. And that person preferably should be dead. So we don't have to <laughs> ask them if they want to be involved or suddenly have somebody <laughs> saying, that's my institute. Why am I not the director of it? Where's my check? Right. So Tom starts to look at um, not having any idea who people from this area are. You just looked at what Wikipedia of the famous North Rhine-Westphalians. Yeah. You came up with a very good solution, which kind of, I mean, that's uh, you could you could take that as a as an example for some something where an algorithm might find that because it fits all the all the <laughs> all the criteria, but it doesn't really work. I'm so, not going to tell them what it is. You're going to. You're not going to tell them. No, because it's embarrassing. It's not that embarrassing. It's, uh, 
when I say now that you came up with the name Friedrich Engels, um, the famous <laughs> communist thinker and friend of Karl Marx, people might think that's a great idea. What people have to know for that is that our state government, who are in the end deciding on whether we get the money or not, is a coalition between the Christian Democratic Union, the Conservative Party, and the Free Democrats, the Liberal Party. So they're about as far away as from the Communist Manifesto as you can get. Oh, this is exactly why I couldn't say it. I'm glad you did. <laughs> well, how would you know? Well, I mean, here's the thing. I did my PhD at York University in northwestern corner of Toronto, Ontario, Canada, which might I add is a geographical challenge and paradox on its own terms because it's so far out of the way. It's a commuter school. Mm -hmm. That is very much recognized as at a the neo moment. I really just want to talk about the geogra geographical relationship between London and York. But forget about that. <laughs> I think that's going to be Education Inc. episode three. But. Yeah, that's going to be our new geography podcast. What's that thing on the map? Well, somebody's got to pay you for this. <laughs> I'll get you a beer this weekend in the meantime. But until we get our What's That Thing on the Map cast going, in anticipation of episode three, because I definitely think we're going to be doing more of these. York really is recognized as like a neo-Marxist institute. Now, mm -hmm. if you're a political scientist at York in graduate school, some people celebrate this. When you look at the history of York University, especially in relation to one of our biggest universities in Canada, if not the biggest, the University of Toronto, which is a very conservative university, York then makes a lot of sense as a neo-Marxist institution because it's not a right-wing institution. Mm -hmm. Other people, on the other hand, look at this and they scoff. Because of capital C, capital T critical theory, mm -hmm. the Frankfurt School, the Copenhagen School, the Paris Schools, depends which ones you identify with, but if it's strictly the Frankfurt School, a lot of people um, take shots at York and criticize uh, people who identify with the neo-Marxist register because they're committed to like class struggle. Mm -hmm. And that's all they ever really see. That's one of the critiques that York often gets. So when I say the word like, oh, why don't we use Engels as the name for the Institute? What comes to mind, what, what is, is drawn to bear for me is this like this weird, funny tension back mm -hmm. home. And somehow the tension is really productive. But in the context of North Rhine-Westphalia, with a, a Christian coalition with what? The liberals. The liberals? Yeah, yeah I can see how this isn't going to fly. <laughs> so we have some labor to produce. Right. With regards to finding a name. And how much time does Kais have to find a name before the application is put in to get a, a huge amount of money to become a larger center or institute? July 31st is when we have to hand in the concept. So, and we, w we would like to put a name on that. So Let's put it like that. if anyone's listening, and I'm sure there will be, especially now that you're on the show, Max, <laughs> please, all my, all my Instagram followers, do not hesitate to let us know. Obviously, you can tweet us at WTNcast. You can hit me up at Thomas N. Cook. Do you have Twitter? Yeah. Do you want to give a shout out to yourself? I don't look at Twitter. I just realized it's at M. It's my name. I just 
I just spelled my name to you and you can't pronounce it. <laughs> it's at M Brenker. It's M B R E N K E R. That's my first initial and my last name. So maybe in the title you can figure out what that looks like. Yeah, absolutely. Weirdly enough, talking about Twitter, the moment I started working at the Center for Advanced Internet Studies, I kind of started to wane off Twitter because it was just annoying the shit out of me. So I deleted the app and now I don't look at Twitter and um, I'm happier being for it, but I kind of have to go back to it now. Do you Thank find you, it Thomas. easier? You're welcome. Do you find it uh, easier to do your work in a center that focuses on digitization as like a social hurdle or as a, an objective of sorts to just stay off of social media? Like I know Facebook isn't popular here very popular in Germany. Do you spend a lot of time on social media? I personally, that wasn't a decision connected to working here. That was more like I spent too much time on Twitter, like <laughs> not actually thinking about things, uh, just letting myself be um, drizzled over by content more or less. Um, so I try to wane off that. Um, and now I'm just looking at Reddit, so it's not like it's working. I'm just I just replaced one drug with the next um, no because what I do to continue that what, what I do is um, at this point more organizational so we're not just thinking about what this um, what this center or institute will do at some point we also have to figure out a budget have to figure out how many people we're hiring how we finance that um, how you can actually hire people in the ridiculous German uh, laws of uh, hiring people in the in the public sector, how that works with uh, us being actually a limited liability company that is owned by public sector institutions. That's a complete, like, people are really, because two worlds clash into each other, and that's that's a huge thing that you kind of have to work, work around. That's why our executive director for... Uh, for good reason as a lawyer like he has to go through through a lot of laws and figure out how that works um, so that's a lot of what I do like figure out organizational stuff up until now and now we're like with about two and a half months to go we're, we're more in the direction of, of actual content like um, so that's that's a different part of my work that I that I have to do and like dig through the ways you can actually make somebody a professor and how that works with um, us wanting to be be nimble that's a, a big big thing we we kind of have to have to balance because normally if you become a professor in Germany you become something what is called a Beamte which is a special kind of employment by the state and Beamte are hired for life and they can't be fired there is no way to fire them except for gross negligence or something. But generally, you're hired for life and um, you get a huge pension. And that used to be train drivers and all teachers and everybody at the university. And that's being rolled back more and more and more. But professors are still in the area. So how do you balance that with wanting to change what you do as quickly as you can? I'm not going to tell you the solution. Um, because <laughs> it's kind of a workaround, but it works. Um, and it's not something we 
just try out it's something that that is, is done all over the place but um yeah and that's also for me a, a thing that's like i'm of course as somebody who's kind of starting out in work life i don't really want to continue to personally have like contract for one year then another contract for a year and that's I think that's especially in academia academia that's a huge problem absolutely it's a huge problem in North America right so on the one hand side I I don't want to perpetrate perpetuate that system on the other hand like I just have to construct something in a way that you can get new people in and I have to sell that to universities because at the end of the day they have to say yeah we're gonna we're the ones who own this, so we have to, we have to, um, well, in the end, we're the ones liable for that. So um, you can't really, yeah, just hire people for life. You have to uh, figure out ways to, to balance that. And that's one of the things we're, we're trying to do in our, in our proposal. It's, it's incredible how the proposal brings out so many different threads of challenges and obstacles that are usually strewn about the academy very widely. Yeah. You know, we're talking about very specific administrative issues. We're talking about very specific legal boundaries and requirements. We're talking about very broad philosophical implications surrounding the poten potential unity of hard scientists and social scientists yeah. working together under the, the rubric of digitization. So as we wind down here in this podcast, because we're running out of time, I'm curious, what vision do you have in your capacity here at KAIS for this center morphing into something bigger? You're going to win that grant. What does this look like for you two years from now? What projects do you want to see happen? Well, what, what's the best case scenario here? Two years from now, we haven't even started working yet. That's the that's the other ridiculous part about this that the entire process is really really long. Because just to very quickly very quickly uh, try to explain it, um, we're going to put in the application at the end of July. We're going to have a scientific evaluation by October. And then it's going to be put into the budget, and the budget has to be um, ratified by Parliament. And that uh, doesn't work for next year, so we're in the budget for 2020, if we get there. So then it's 2020, when we actually have money. So then we have to find people to actually run the place. So the first research program will start in like 2021. That's one thing we're going to be... The last version of the concept has us working full strength at 2024. Wow because we have to kind of stutter, stutter step our way to full strength. What I want it to be is be a lighthouse because we have this huge bit, like I said, we have 16 universities here and they're, they're doing great stuff. I'm not, we're not um, saying they're doing the wrong thing or anything. They just, um, some of them are too large to, to work as, as quickly as we want. Some of them are, um, are just too stuck in there, not in the mind. Just the organizational structure doesn't allow them to, to work as as interdisciplinary as we would want to. So, basically, use that base and use the the incredible amount of research and knowledge that is done here, and um, figure out new ways to think about what we actually do with these things that are all around us and how that shapes us, how we shape that, 
and um, yeah, be a lighthouse that shines from North Rhine-Westphalia to Germany and hopefully to the world. We now have a huge following in Canada of you. Absolutely. <laughs> All of our listeners are going to be visiting the website over the weekend, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, of course, want to want to um, be leading our own, even though we're a state institute of um, only one of the 16 states of Germany, the, the, the idea is to produce research that hasn't been done before in a way that hasn't been done before. And just um, all the challenges we talked about, we talked quite negatively, but if you think about what could happen if we put it together in a way that works, um, that's really something, I think. So, um, yeah, looking forward to the next few years. And up until then, um, just to make a pivot into plugging the current institute, if people go to kais.cais.nrw, they can look at the call for applications that is out. And as you obviously know, Tam Tommy applied from Canada, so you can apply from all over the world. And uh, I think the current current call is out for June, so that's a bit short, but September, I think, is the next one. So, um, yeah, maybe we find new fellows and friends through this avenue up until then. When I found out about you guys, I was absolutely elated because of the presence online, the things that you are focusing on doing, and the way in which you bring it all together. And I have to say, only being here for two weeks, man, I feel like I'm part of a family here. The spirit and the culture inside of the center, legitimately, genuinely, I mean this from the bottom of my heart. I haven't seen something like this before. This is this is like a rare privilege, you know, becoming a scholar in North America because we tend not to have the public support that you guys have here in order to make these things possible. How many universities did you say you have in this region, approximately again? Well, 16 full universities. I don't think we have, you know, three quarters of that number of universities in our entire country. Yeah. And you can fit Germany inside of our province at least three times. <laughs> Max, listen, man, this has been absolutely fascinating, invigorating. I definitely want to follow up with you. So why don't we let a few more weeks pass by? You keep working on your thing. I'll keep working on my thing. We'll keep talking in the hallways and figuring out how we can come up with the name as we pull for uh, you know name suggestions online. And um, let's talk again about the future of, of Kais. Um, after we, after a few more ideas get hammered out into paper, and uh, we can continue this conversation in terms of Education Inc. Part Two and Three and Four, we can do this all summer long. Does it sound okay to you? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, people will hear us on our uh, different uh, other podcasts. What was it? What What is that on the map? And of course, uh, <laughs> cooking show with Tommy and Max, where we. That's a whole different thing. I'm, we, you're going to cut this. Anyway. <laughs> That's how we're going to start off our next show <laughs> when we kick off by talking about Max's dream to dig a hole in the ground and cook some meat using some stones and some fire. Yeah. Thanks again for joining me, man. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for joining us for another episode of What's That Noise? If you enjoyed this show, give us a follow at Thomas N. Cook and at WTNCast. 
or if you have any complaints, you can also hit us up at Derek Crib. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes or Google Play Music. And until next time, keep listening to the noise.